Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. This episode is supported by our 2021 annual conference partner, Rosh Review. My name is Brian Hisher, filling in for our regular host, Dr. Saria Carter-Sakosia. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rosh Review founder and CEO, Adam Rosh, about personal motivation, remote work culture, how to motivate residents into becoming lifelong learners, and much more. Hello, and welcome to the STFM podcast. My name is Brian Hisher, and today I'm joined by Dr. Adam Rosh. Adam Rosh is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, where he earned his Bachelor of Science degrees in biochemistry and molecular biology, and his Master of Science degree in microbiology and bacteriology with a focus in public health. He earned his medical doctor degree from Rutgers University Medical School and completed his emergency medicine residency training at New York University Bellevue Hospital. Dr. Rosh worked as an emergency medicine physician with Detroit Medical Center, Detroit Receiving Hospital, for almost a decade where he served as program director. He is the founder and CEO of Rosh Review, an online medical and nursing education company. He is married to Danelle McGuire, a professor and author, has two kids, a dog, and is a resident of Huntington Woods, Michigan. Dr. Raj, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Brian. And gosh, that would uh, make my mom real proud of, of what you just said. So, uh, That's wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what led you to start Rosh Review? Absolutely. You know, my learning journey is probably similar to many, but also has many differences. I was, you know, high school uh, was pretty easy for me and, and simply because there, it wasn't as rigorous um, uh, for me as it was to, for other people. Uh, but that ease actually ended up becoming a detriment because when I made my way to undergraduate college, I had a very difficult time with learning. No one ever taught me to learn, right? We're always given tests and assignments, but we spend very little time on the process of learning, the process of um, habits and motivation. So in undergraduate college, uh, I did uh I did pretty poorly. And it probably wasn't because of a, of a knowledge issue. It was because I was uh, really never taught how to learn and I didn't apply myself. So I think by my end of my sophomore year, I had a 2.1 cumulative GPA. Uh, and I had one of those moments, like I'm sure many people do, uh, what am I going to do with myself? And I made a decision. I, you know, I, I did a lot of reflecting and realized that one of the things I was grappling with was not believing in myself. And part of that was probably because uh, people, or at least I interpreted, people weren't believing in me. They didn't believe in me. I wasn't doing well. Uh, And so I made a decision at this moment that I wanted to try and do something that would be uh, out of the ordinary for someone in my position at the time at 2.1 GPA, I said, I'm going to medical school. Uh, And so I put a little sticky note, one of those yellow sticky notes, and I had a purple marker at the time, and I wrote on it, said, you got to believe. And I needed to start believing in myself that I was going to have this ability uh, to take my GPA from a 2.1 up into the uh, numbers that needed to to get looked at for for medical school. Well, uh, the journey really started at that stage where I, you know, picked up every book I could find on how to learn. You know, some of it was, I went back and spent time on vocabulary, on grammar, on sentence structure, on mathematics, uh, history. Uh, and, and it was a really uh, ex- you know, pivotal time in my life. And I extended undergrad by a year, went to graduate school, believe it or not, and then applied to medical school. And I was accepted. 
which was uh, a, a great uh, kind of um, reaching a goal. It was really, really wonderful. But I got to medical school and I'm surrounded by all these people who a lot came from Ivy League schools. They had a rich history in education and learning. And I felt out of place again. And so in the beginning, where in undergrad, in, in medical school, you essentially in one half of the year, you do as much work as you would do in one year of undergraduate. And so that was another new environment and challenge that I was faced with. And so I had to learn to adapt there. Uh, that, that work allowed me to continue to become a better learner and a better student and ultimately a better teacher uh, because all of the investment in learning uh, what it was like, I was overflowing with it, with that knowledge. And I wanted to start giving back to other students who were struggling. And in medical school, I started tutoring. Uh, and, and that really became the start of my interest in learning for others as well. Uh, when I got to residency in, in New York University, I was again, though, struck by the same type of challenge where here I'm around people who went to top end medical schools, came with a, you know, wealth of knowledge, and I felt extremely insecure again. And here's a really great story. My first day of residency training, I was in the ICU, the medical ICU at New York University major medical center, very sick patients, very high expectations. And just so happens I was paired with another resident at the time uh, in my program, emergency medicine. And the first day I saw he was able to put medication orders in. He was able to care for the patients, no problem. I, and, and it was very, uh, I, I felt so insecure because I was struggling and I said, do I really belong here? Am I, uh, you, you know, is this the imposter uh, in me that, that now everyone is seeing? And I essentially, you know, tears came to my eyes and, and I really wondered whether or not I belonged. Uh, it turns out uh, m the, my co-resident at the time he took me under his wing for a little while, got me acclimated, kind of, I watched him, how he was interacting with the patients, how he was, uh, you know, doing his reading and the journals and reading journals, uh, and kind of set me on, on a new course through residency training. And the irony of this, uh, of that one story uh, was that, uh, the co-resident's name was Steve, Steve Hogue. Steve Hogue dropped out of residency after his first year. Uh, and I couldn't believe it because I said, this guy's so intelligent. He's so sharp. He, he's so comfortable. He's so great at patient care. Uh, and about a year later, a, a year from recently, about a year ago, I find out uh, that Steve Hogue is the president of Moderna, the vaccine maker of COVID-19. And when I received my COVID vaccine shot, it was Steve who I thought about. In my time of struggle in residency training, he was there for me. And in the time of COVID-19, and being able to receive that vaccine, Steve was there for me again. Uh, and, you know, through residency, uh, education uh, became so critical for so many reasons that, that I know we're going to touch on here, whether it was becoming a lifelong learner, whether it was uh, becoming motivated and having a commitment and responsibility to society and to patients, uh, 
uh, to building a program. Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, it was the, my interaction or my experience in residency training that led to the development of Ross Review uh, when I finished residency. You know, I'm thinking about that story um, from your first day of residency, and you mentioned imposter, imposter syndrome. And it strikes me that in this case, imposter syndrome was almost a good thing. Do we give, do we not give imposter syndrome enough credit for the motivation it provides? I think, you know, insecurity, imposter syndrome, uh, fear of failure, a lot of these elements, these ideas, these feelings motivate a lot of people. Uh, But there's a fine line there. They could also destroy a lot of people and lead to, um, you know, decisions that that are not, uh, that are short-term thinking. Uh, Imposter syndrome is very interesting because it's so prevalent in medical education. And I've had this discussion many times about how do you get past imposter syndrome? It's the number one question I'm asked by residents, medical students. And uh, I tell them, well, uh, you know, there's still elements that uh, in me that I have imposter syndrome uh, for sure. But I think as you, the way around imposter syndrome uh, is to recognize it is to know what it is, but then to also know that if you're prepared, if you are a lifelong learner, if you are someone who is open to feedback and direction, and if you want to, uh, if you are okay with being wrong, but knowing that you want to find the right answer or or, or, or learning is a journey, then you're then wrestling with uh, imposter syndrome is much more manageable. It's much easier. I'm not afraid to be wrong. I've learned in residency and beyond, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to be arrogant. And you have humility in residency training, you have humility in medicine in general. And I always found that the best caretakers are the ones who, who know that they don't have, they may not have the right answers all the time. uh, But uh, they're, they're the ones who will, uh, if they are wrong, they will seek out the right answer. (laughs) And I'll, I'll just, there's a, one story that came to mind, which I think was the greatest spark in residency. At the end of my six-month evaluation with my program director, I sat down and I got, you know, I fulfilled all my requirements, my procedures, all the ACGME requirements were filled. I was an administrative gem. But he points out to me, he said, you know, uh, you have a lot of comments. Adam is in the back of his class as far as knowledge goes. He he needs to read more. Um, And given that the journey that I was on to get to this point, that was uh, a blow to me to see that. And... It just like the time where I had to make that decision in undergrad, what I was going to do with my life, I had that same type of situation. And from it was that day where I said, every day before my shift or before the my day started uh, in residency, I was going to spend one hour reading my textbook. And when I got home, I was going to spend an hour reading about the patients I just saw. And it was a habit that I formed. And it wasn't that I was any more knowledgeable, just inherently knowledgeable. It was I started building these habits. 
And it was these types of habits that what I saw led to be highly successful uh, in taking me from that evaluation at the end of my first year to when I look at my evaluations at the end of my fourth year, they are 180 degrees apart. Instead of saying Adam is at the bottom of his class in knowledge, they say, we have never seen a resident like Adam with his motivation and strong knowledge foundation, which for me was the capstone. It was the recognition of the work that was put in uh, over all of those years of residency training. So you've really experienced then the full gamut of feelings um, that that would arise from uh, you know, having those six month eval- evals come in, um, motivate you, uh, redirecting your own self, um, you know, setting up that daily habit and so on to finally achieving the, what you wanted to achieve. Yeah, you know, so for all the program directors out there who who may not know if who may not you know think about do six month evaluations impact residents. I could tell you, absolutely. Uh, If it's, you know, obviously you got to have a resident who uh, cares and most do, right? Almost all do. Uh, It is certainly a motivator for sure. So how critical then in your mind is empathy um, for teaching? Do you, do you sometimes have to remind yourself where you were at um, when you're, when you're teaching someone? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure, you know, where, you know, the empathy, I, I, I could, there's a couple things when I think about uh, teaching and, and the teachers who had the greatest impact, let's say on me. And I think what I see uh, as a student or learner, and then being in the role of a teacher, I think the greatest challenge that educators have in medical education oftentimes is the curse of knowledge. It's that what we take for granted as common knowledge or as something that seems easy, it's the complexity of understanding a concept. We've struggled, we we, as an educator, uh, we had to struggle with that years ago to learn whatever it is And to us, it seems pretty straightforward. But when you're that resident, there are concepts that are so foreign to the resident, but so clear to the attending that the teaching of that concept, right? It's taken for for granted by the educator. And uh, you have to remember that when you are explaining a topic or concept, uh, to start with the fundamentals, to start with understanding why these things matter, to start building connections around that topic uh, so that the learners understand the meaning, understand the relationships uh, between topics, and so that they could build the the best learning is learning built off a strong foundation rather than just understanding the facts and being told do this because uh and i think educators it's not that they're intentionally uh uh making sometimes making learning more difficult or challenging it's due to a, a curse of knowledge. It's because things uh, are so easy and recognizable after many, many years of studying it and seeing it. Uh, but you just have to remind yourself, one, every single medical educator was once a student sitting in that classroom struggling with the content uh, to understand it. That's so true. How you know, for someone who does need to put in more time, more study, um, how can you encourage someone to do more than they're already doing, especially when many residents are often pushed to to their limits already? You know, I think you could apply some basic marketing principles to this, believe it or not. And if anyone out there 
uh, hasn't read or watched the material by Simon Sinek, uh, I encourage you to do so. He has, he's on YouTube, he has books. Simon Sinek took the concept of what, how, and why. And this was an eye-opening for me. You could apply it to marketing, but you could apply it to anything in, in the world. Uh, most people, take if you think about a bullseye, uh, you, from the outside going in, uh, most people start with what they are doing, how they're going to do it, and then end with why they are doing something. What Sinek did is he just kind of turned that upside down. He said, let's first start with why we are doing something. If we could figure out the why, then you will know the how and the what. So as a educator, a learner, a clinician, in a, in your, to, to answer the question, how do we motivate learners? Ultimately, they need to know why they are doing this in the first place. We can't tell a learner, go home and read, right? After a, sh after a day at the clinic or the office so that you could pass an exam or to be a better physician or clinician, right? Those are the what's, those are the how's you know, spend an hour, do this, read this. There's no why mentioned there, right? There's no, there's no, so that when you're face to face with a patient who's been stressed out for the last month because they don't know what's going to happen with their cancer diagnosis and they're coming to you and they, they need they want to be assured or they just want some information, some insights. There's some more why. There's the why, right? It's that connection. That It's that lifelong connection that you would have with a patient. There's a why there because that patient's going to go home. They're going to call their son or daughter or mother and father and talk about that conversation that they just had with their physician. That impact is the why. The changing of lives is the why. So it's interesting because at Ross Review, right, we, we do, we're a QBank company. We're, we're a medical education and nursing education QBank company. And our authors may ask, oh, I need to create a question. I need to write a question and an explanation because the learners or subscribers need to learn a topic and take an exam to pass so that they could get credentialed. And I say, yeah, that's what you're doing, right? And how you're doing it is by writing those questions. I said, but that's not the why. It's not why you're doing it. That question that they're writing and that knowledge that they're transmitting is having an impact so that that learner could now make a decision at the bedside that will ultimately transfer to a human being, how another human being's day is going to go, whether they're going to be hospitalized or discharged, whether they're going to see their loved one for another year or another 10 years, whether they're going to receive health insurance benefits or not. That single question that an author submits ends at the bedside. And when you think about it that way, you start motivating your authors to create content in a way that is much higher quality, has much greater purpose and meaning. And so if we take that model and apply it to resident education, why do residents need to learn how to take a proper history and physical? Why should residents learn, you know, how to manage hypertension? It's not just to get the numbers down, right? That's what you're doing and how you're doing it 
is by giving medication, by encouraging exercise, better eating, right? Better diet. But why? When someone knows their why, everything else kind of flows from that and becomes more purposeful and easier to do. And you're inspired to wake up in the morning in a way uh, than just focusing on the what and the how. So maybe you can help me with this. Um, So coming up with the why is an incredible motivator. But what I've found is that when you have so many whys, sometimes there's a lot of whys. And you've got a lot of things you're trying to do. Um, You might have one goal. You might have um, specific things you're trying to accomplish. But how how do you sort of cement the why in your own life? Well, that is something that... Uh, is hard. Uh, finding the why of anything is extremely, cha- is for some people, it's extremely challenging. Uh, most of the time we confuse whys with what's and how's, right? Um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I, I go into business, why? To, to make money, to have a better life. No, that that's actually, um, right? how you do it, right? You, you, what you do, you sell something, uh, and ultimately someone buys it, you make money. Uh, But, uh, that's in, in the business world. And that's, that's where, where this, uh, where Simon Sinek writes about this. Um, everyone could have a why and, uh, it's something that I would encourage. I can't, you know, someone can't tell you what your why is. This is something that needs to be explored. And, and there usually doesn't have to be many whys to something. You can have a single one. It's like an ethos, right? It's like a purpose. And then everything else stems from that. Uh, so I, I think a good place to leave this is to say, exp- is to go to the Simon Sinek getting to why I think it's called or find your why or getting to why W H Y watch his short video, understand the principles and then start exploring it. And it will be, I believe it will be harder than you think, but it will be more fulfilling because it starts asking yourself the hard questions about why you do something. You know, you remind me of something earlier you said. Um, you were you were describing uh, your realization that your GPA needed to go up. And you had written down, you gotta believe. And this sort of became a, 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 a mnemonic, but a visual one, it sounds like. Um, how critical is it to have something like that in your life that helps sort of maintain focus? So let's just go back and return to that yellow sticky note that says you got to believe on it because I wrote that in, I believe it was 1995. It sits next to me at my desk still, the original one. And I look at it every single day to remind myself of where I was and where I've come, what I've done and why I've done those things. So internal motivators, everyone or many people have internal motivators. I think in athletics, we could look at, look at athletes Elite athletes absolutely have internal motivators. All athletes probably have internal motivators. Um, and internal motivators could be, there's there's such a variety. It could be you're doing it because you're a family of immigrants. And the opportunity that your parents have given you, you want to give them back something. It could be. It could be something that, you know, Michael Jordan, if you watched The Last Dance in the past year or two, he was always motivated by, you know, people telling him he couldn't do something. 
you never tell Michael Jordan he couldn't do something because you know what would happen. He would come back and score on you. And if you watch The Last Dance, you'll see that. I think, believe it or not, uh, you could also have an internal motivator of wanting to see a better world. A philosophical or ideological motivator, my chairman, Louis Goldfrank, Dr. Louis Goldfrank at Bellevue, he believed in the best of humanity, that every human being has value. His family was part of the Ethical Cultural Society, and he was driven by this ideology, and that really was a, the culture of our residency was defined by these values of our chairman. And you just had to watch him for a day and you were motivated, you were inspired. Well, that makes a, a good transition. Um, you know, you mentioned culture. Um, so we have internal motivators. There's external motiva- motivators. Culture is itself a form of external motivation. Um, how would you define culture in a workplace or a residency? I, I, I actually believe, um, so culture is both internal and external. I think when people talk about culture, people define it in, in residency training and office space, you know, there's, there's the core values, there's the mission statement and it's written out, it's put in a plaque or in a, some type of uh, picture frame and it's hung on a wall. Nowadays it's put on a website homepage. People spend, they have a deep work session for a day They put this together, everyone agrees on it, and then it just sits there. And it's words. And and I'm generalizing right now. Uh, I think the single greatest impact on any organization, residency, business, is a core value, is organizational health, And this is a concept I learned from Patrick Lencioni, uh, who who, um, has written many books about this. But to answer your question, what are core values in a program? It's about behavior. How do you behave? How do we behave? How does this program behave? What would people expect my response to be? If X happens, what will Y be my response, right? So if you apply this to education and training and and a resident, if a patient acts confrontational, how should the resident respond, right? If it's baked in the culture, If it's a core value, that resident will know, if it's the right one at least, uh, not to personalize it. Maybe this patient just received bad information. Maybe they're stressed out. And to have the empathy and to have the understanding to listen to that patient and then to respond in a way that is going to help that patient. So if you have a core value wrapped around, if you have a core value, they become filters for responses. They become filters for behaviors. They become filters for actions that lead to results. It sounds like your chairman was um, sort of a living core value. (laughs) That's affirmative. And I think... Everyone he's touched, everyone he's impacted will tell you the same thing. And look, not everyone could be Dr. Goldfrank. My 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 partner, my wife tells me this all the time. You know, it's really fascinating. After you leave residency training from him, you try and live up to his values. And it's really hard. And it's okay, right? My wife used to tell me, it's okay, you, you know, 
you you could strive to be the way he was um but that's that's the important part you know i think when we take away uh what dr goldfrank represented he um that's the important thing meaning uh he he set a an expectation uh he showed as a leader leaders lead right they do things first they set the example and when i became a program director you take those types of lessons with you uh you know dr goldfrank would always working in whether it was in the clinic in the emergency department uh, he is a you know one of the one of the examples that i use when i'm when i'm with residents or, or learners is if there's a patient in a stretcher and this is so simple the patient's in a stretcher the rails of the stretcher are down no matter what dr goldfrank would walk up to that stretcher and put the rail up he didn't ask anyone to do it he just did it he didn't comment on it but you saw it. And so guess what all the residents started to do, right? The new residents, they knew that, all right, the first time you don't think about it, but after you see him do that multiple times, you start doing it. And then, and now you have an entire department with patients on stretchers with all of the railings up. And what does that lead to? That leads to less morbidity in patient due to patients falling out of stretchers. They don't fall out of stretchers anymore because all of the railings are up. A simple thing like that. Picking up a Band-Aid on the floor, trash on the floor. When you see your chairman doing it and you're looking at something on the floor, a piece of trash on the floor, you say to yourself, I better pick that up. And what does that lead to? It leads to a cleaner department. So as a leader, all of those are values. Now, what was his value, right? He had a value that led to that. And then as a leader, he set the example. So this is behavior that you can see, that you can witness, that you can incorporate into your own life. But what we've seen in the last year is that so many of us have had to go remote. And we have this sort of... um, Uh, what feels like a restricting of our culture and a restricting of what it is we can learn from now that we're remote. Um, How might you develop a remote culture um, that could have a similar impact to um, lifting the railings on a stretcher? Hmm. I think that's a wonderful question. And um, a, a hard one, certainly, uh, for me, for me to answer, I, I don't know what the right answer is, but the same principles apply. Um, you know, Rosh Review. I could take some some examples from Rosh Review because it's we've been a remote company, meaning actually, let me let me rephrase that because I don't like calling us. I don't like using the word remote. Remote implies that we're far from one another, uh, but. Uh, I there is someone who works at Ross Review uh, who is my next door neighbor. And she lives literally 10 feet from me. I would not consider her remote. So I like to use the word distributed, right? We're just, we're not in a single office space. Uh, we're in different parts. We're, you know, around a state, a city, the world, whatever it may be. Remote culture or distributed culture or distance education. Um, it's uh, it was it was cast upon us in this past year, <laughs> and it was interesting to watch. You know, Zoom meetings. Uh, I, I could I could tell you here here's um an interesting example of where I think culture. Uh, would have an impact here. I find it, and this also applies to in-person, but I find the idea of, let's say 
you know, you're in, you're having a, 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 me, a meeting, a conference, and you set the conference to start at 1 p.m. And 70% of the people have joined at 12.55. A few more come in at 12.58, 12.59. And you have most people there at 1 p.m. Because that was the expectation set. Now, you can have a culture. Now, not everyone's on the call right now, right? On this video call, or even let's say a meeting in person, you could think about it that way. And we'll, we'll tie in culture in a minute. And then you hear the moderator or the leader say, let's just wait a few more minutes before we start this meeting. So who is that rewarding? What is that incentivizing? What is the culture that you are establishing? 80% of the people made it uh, a response. They took responsibility to be there on time. And now you have a leader taking five minutes more to wait for people to join in. And that culture, that's actually defining a culture. And so what is what happens at the next meeting? The same thing. And ultimately, if you play that culture out, now you have less and less people joining early and you have more and more people joining five minutes later. And you, you stretch that out. And now that 30-minute meeting becomes 45. And this is why people don't like meetings. One of the reasons why people don't like meetings. So for distributed education, distributed culture, there's an example. You could set culture however you want, whether you are in person or not. So if a meeting set for one o'clock started at one o'clock, why? Because you may have a culture that respects people's time. You may have a culture that you want to take, uh, people should be responsible for showing up, right? Another part of a way to establish a culture is to be present on meetings, is to be on video meetings, right? To not have email open. I am, this is one thing that I am so guilty of. And I spent a lot of time working on improving. I would be a part of a meeting. There'd be 10 people on the call and I'd be checking email or on my iPhone. And my attention was 70%. And of course, everyone thinks that they can multitask great and you can't, right? Someone would ask me a question and I'd give them a poor answer and then I'd feel bad. I felt like I was disrespecting people's time. So we set a culture at Ross Review, one of our one of our values is that uh, we're present all that when we are together, we are present. Now, how does this impact culture and how does this lead to something um, uh, palpable, something, you know, something that objective you can measure? Well, meetings will only last 15, 20 minutes when they actually even occur. Because if everyone's given 100% attention, we get, we get the meeting done. We get what we need to do, be done at the meeting. And then we're off doing our own things again. So there's lots of ways to maintain and create and reinforce culture, even when it's through video or distance. Well, you know, I think we could talk about these topics for the next three hours and thus create a, a culture of excessive podcast lengths. <laughs> um, but rather than do that, um, I thought maybe we could wrap it up by having you um, maybe do you have any last thoughts about this topic or um, uh, something specific you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I think people undervalue the impact culture has because it's hard. Uh, it's, it's easy to write core values down. It's hard to live by core values. And it's okay to sometimes fail at a core value. The greatest impact and advantage an organization could have a residency could have 
is developing strong core values. So, you know, let, I, let me just give a quick example and then, and then you could certainly wrap up here. But when you think about um, what we established at Rosh Review for core values, we have three core values. One of those, the first core value is it's we pay attention to detail and always deliver the highest quality content. Now that sounds, you know, trite. It's, of course you want to deliver quality content. Of course you should pay attention to detail, right? So we'll circle back to, to that in a second. But instead of saying that to everyone who works with Rosh Review, and it's not just an employee, it's actually everyone who we make contact with. Everyone who we have a conversation with will hear about these values. But what we do is we create some type of phrase. And the phrase for the, for people to understand what that value actually means, what it represents. So for the first one, we say, we remember the first core value by the phrase, one space after all periods. And that means our content, we require one space after all periods. It's quite simple. But if an author submits content that has two spaces, it gets sent back. Now, it's an easy thing to remember. So when we're making a decision or anyone's making a decision in the organization, they have to, they remind themselves one space after all periods. Okay. If I'm going to deliver this, I'm going to make sure that this is the highest quality content because otherwise I'm going to get this sent back due to the phrase one space after all periods. The other core value is we're found, we're founded by doctors and we believe it's a privilege to interact with and care for individuals. Right. And this may seem kind of strange to say, how does patient care carry over into a business of, of, um, but I think this is prime and it's also perfect for even resident education in that it's always a privilege to interact with people. It's a privilege and we don't take that for granted. And the phrase that we use to remember that it's the laying on of hands, right? It's the, the exam that a physician does with a patient, the intimacy of the interview of learning about someone's most personal aspects of their life. That's a privilege. And so that becomes a core value. And then the third one is we're always learning and continuously self-improving, right? It's part of our DNA. We always go one step further. And we remember that by the phrase, the 11th rep. And that means when most people do exercise routines or weightlifting routines, one set is 10 reps. That's the standard. We go beyond the standard. We go one more. So it's the 11th rep. Now, here's, here's where it kind of all comes together. And then I think um, this is a great, a great wrap up and, and a great takeaway. Two things. Number one, you cannot just hang a plaque up or put core values on a website. I've, I've, said, I've said this multiple times in, in, so far. Um, you have to live through these core values. You have to message these core values over and over again. So every time you make a decision or any time you want to highlight someone's success in an organization, in a residency, you filter it through the core value. You know, so-and-so, you handled that conversation so well. It was exactly what our, you know, blank, blank core value supports. How many times do you hear that in, in residencies or in programs? I, you never hear it, right? As a program director, right? I'm certainly at fault for, for, you know, I hadn't, didn't really know this type of concept at the time. So if you reinforce it in your email messages, instead of saying you have to do this, it's 
we want, you know, whatever the core value is, you know, we have to, at Rosh Review, it may be, it may be, you know, we have to make sure we review this uh, content again because we have promised one space after all periods, and that's what we're going to deliver. So it's the same thing in resident education. And every decision we make as an organization and every decision a residency program could make could be filtered through their core values. Should we do something or shouldn't we do something? Well, let's go to our core values and make that decision. How do we interact with another party? What guideline or what, you know, if, 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 if we have a, 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 in an office or, or how we're setting up our residency program or training or classes, does it meet our core values? And if you apply that across the board all of the time, you'll set yourself up for success. You will have a motivated learner and you will train uh, the future uh, physicians and caretakers to then do those same types of behaviors and transfer those same types of behaviors to that next generation. The same thing that happened to me uh, on my journey. Dr. Rosh, this has been uh, a pleasure to talk with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to share um, your journey with us and the things you've learned. I really appreciate your time, Brian. I appreciate STFM and all the good work uh, that you guys are doing. So thank you very much. You've been listening to the STFM podcast, produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at stfm.org and follow us on Twitter at STFM underscore FM. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2021.